Amen. Amen. I was about to say you can grab a seat, but you're already there. Kiddos, you guys are dismissed. Have fun. We're praying for you as you go learn about Jesus in in your context. Um, The rest of the church, if you have a Bible, flip with me to Nehemiah chapter 7. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name's Gabe. I'm one of the elders and the primary teaching elder here. Um, We're glad that you're here. You made it on this day of all days, the time change day. Um, I'm just grateful. And I'm also really curious. Um, we're now at what was 1030. So let's see who comes in. Are y'all right with that? <laughs> y'all are dragging. It's all right. Uh, we are too. We had some hiccups here in the production side of things, but here's the reality. Uh, we're not here to produce anything. We're not here to perform. We're not here to look how great we are. We're here to lift up Jesus. And if we blunder some transitions, that's, that's okay, right? that okay? All right, so while you're flipping to Nehemiah, uh, let me make a few couple, few things, yep. Let me make a couple announcements just as a way of introduction. Um, last night, we had our first annual father-daughter dance. Yes, it was fantastic. Uh, so, uh, Debbie Dodd, Addie Gunnan, and Macy, I haven't seen her. Uh, would you guys just stand up real quick? I know all of you are going to hate this. There's Addie. There's Debbie. Thank you guys so much for putting this on. Seriously. All right, you guys can grab a seat. If you helped, if you volunteered last night, would you stand up real quick too? Thank you guys. So out of the 20 or so families that that registered and came last night, only about three were actual church members, three or four. Um, So that was a massive outreach to the community, and we got to dance. I think there are some videos of me floating around there dancing. Um, It's... I'm not ashamed of it. I, I come to party, right? Um, here, a couple other quick announcements. Uh, thank you guys for that. In a second, we're going to take communion together. We do this every single week. Um, but we also know there's this whole coronavirus thing happening. So listen, um, we've, we've go, went ahead and ripped up the bread in separate pieces. So we're trying to fight down some germs. Um, if this bothers you, you don't have to take communion. It's okay. God's not going to smite you over this. Uh, but we are going to be watching over the next couple weeks to see what develops with this. Um, as elders, we might decide, hey, it's the best thing to stop communion for a season um, through this process, kind of let it run its course, and then we'll bring it back. But uh, just know that we're praying, we're considering, we're thinking through all the realities of this. And here's the last thing. Anyone know what's in five weeks? Easter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Easter's in five weeks. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and get this now because I'm going to get some angry phone calls from some parents over the next couple weeks, and I'm just going to embrace it. Uh, I'm actually going to give Rob the other, uh, one of the other elders' number and call Rob. Here's what I'm going to ask. Here's what I'm going to lay before you. Statistically, statistically, the amount of unchurched, non-reached people that will come to a gathering if invited is massive. Okay, so the temptation for us, because uh, I've done it, you've done it, uh, and this is where it's going to get me in a lot of trouble, is to go home and, and go to church with your family on Easter. But here's the reality. No one of your friends, of your neighbors, of your loved ones around you that don't know Jesus are going home to go to church with their family. They're staying here. So, so here's my ask, and this isn't so that we can have some great attendance. That's not our effort. Our effort is to spread the gospel here in Dahlonega. If this is your home five out of the seven days a week, here's what I'm asking. Here's what I'm laying before you to pray and consider. Would you stay in Dahlonega and invite your friends to come gather here to hear the gospel? 
And this is going to upset a lot of parents. And you can drive home. I will pay your gas if you will leave after the gathering. And you can go have deviled eggs and all that stuff with your family. But would you consider staying here for Easter morning? We're going to have a Good Friday service. We're going to have the Sunday morning service. Would you consider staying here and bringing your friends that don't know the truth of the gospel to the gathering so they can hear it? I know this is going to upset a lot of your parents. So when you say, hey, Mom, hey, Dad, I'm not coming home. So Rob's cell phone number is 678-252-1321, all right? I just totally made that up. If that's your phone number, I am a prophet. Give me some money. If that's not, you're good. All right, are we good? Any other announcements? Any other? All right, Nehemiah chapter 7. So we've been teaching our way through Ezra and Nehemiah, and here we are at Nehemiah chapter 7. So we only have a few more weeks left of these two books, which should be taught together. We've talked about this. should be held together as one book. They weren't separated until the Greek Old Testament came out. They should be taught. They should be orchestrated as one book. And there's this one synopsis sentence that we've been kind of running over week after week after week that really binds these two books together. And I think it'll be on the screen behind me. But here's this sentence. These two books, Ezra and Nehemiah, cover three different waves of returning exiles from 538 to 430 BC. But they tell one story, the restoration of God's covenant people according to his word, which they are now called afresh to obey. So now we've seen all three of the exiles come back. We saw the first one um, come back and they rebuilt the temple. We saw the next one come back with the law. Ezra led through the law. Uh, and then we just saw the walls rebuilt through Nehemiah. So we've seen the three exiles take place. So now what we're really starting to see is the full restoration of Jerusalem. The full restoration. But the word restoration is where we want to kind of camp and where the text is going to push us this morning. Because restoration means returning something to a former owner. So they're restoring, God is restoring Jerusalem back to himself. Because everything went sideways in the garden, right? When sin came in, um, it wrecked everything. It wreaked havoc everywhere they went. And ultimately, it was their sin that led Judah and Israel to fall, led Babylon to come in and take them over, led Persia to take over Babylon, and then eventually Persia to send them back, the exiles, back to Jerusalem. It was all sin that called this. So this restoration God is doing, he's bringing his people back to himself. He's restoring Jerusalem for his own pleasure, for his own glory. So we're seeing this restoration take over in the next couple weeks. But I just kind of want to get something in front of us as we get into this idea of restoration and bringing back to what which was God's because this has been a really hard text for me to read this week. My wife can attest. I've just been wrestling, laboring over this. And here's why. Let me just read kind of Matthew or Jesus' word in Matthew that will set up this text for us this morning. Go and learn what this means, that I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Go learn this. Jesus is telling his disciples, go learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. But, but here's my reality, Right? I value tasks over relationships. I value approval over intimacy. I value hard work over being loved. So I'm okay with sacrifice. Just tell me what I need to do. Tell me what's my responsibility. Tell me what to wear. Tell me where to be. Tell me what tools to bring. Tell me what, I, what equipment I need to have. I'm, I'm ready to work. I'm ready to work off the debt that I find myself in. I'm ready, I'm ready to go. As long as I think that you're pleased with me, that my efforts are going to make you okay with me, I I'm okay with that relationship. 
But what we're going to see in Scripture this morning is that is totally opposite of what God has intended, totally opposite of what the gospel is. And so just for me, I've tried to rationalize, I've tried to justify, I've tried to spin this text to, to make it mean something that it doesn't. Are you all familiar with Occam's razor? That the most obvious answer typically is the right one. And there's a very obvious reading of the text this morning that we're going to see. But for me, it doesn't fall into my mindset, my framework of I can earn it. I can deserve it. I can do enough good things. I can sacrifice enough to, to be loved, to be respected, to be okay with God. I don't just a lot of us, we're in that world. And I can take some, some psychological analysis of how that might happen. But the big idea is that that's, that's our world around us. It doesn't matter if it's your career. It doesn't matter if it's your schooling. Now, for some of us, it doesn't matter if that's your upbringing. We're just, my, our mindset is perform, do good, perform, sacrifice, do good, perform. And so we've just subtly taken that into our relationship with God. But could it be that God, if you are a believer, is pleased with you? Could it be that he rejoices over you? Could it be that there's a joy that's already there? There's a joy that's already found through Christ that, that you don't have to perform, that you don't have to sacrifice, that you can just be. So that's what I want us to see this morning. So let us pray, and then we're going to pick it up in chapter 7. We'll start working through the text together. And Father, thank you for your word. Um, God, we know just as Connor was reporting on the unreached people groups, and Father, there's so many in this world around us that have no access to your word, that have no access to the church, that have no access to um, just your Bible. But Father, we do. We pray that we wouldn't take that lightly. God, this morning, would you draw us into yourself? Would you teach us more about your character, your nature, your love, and less about what we must do? Father, this morning, would there be a, a fresh exhale of relief as we come to know you, the one true God? That's only by your grace that we can pray. Thank you for all that you've done and all that you're continuing to do for us. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, Ezra, we're going to pick it up, excuse me, Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 1. Now, let me just throw this caveat real quick. Is anyone else tired? Okay, there are going to be a bunch of extremely difficult Hebrew names that I'm going to have to get through. And I'm running on uh, three hours of sleep, all right? So, can we just have a little bit of grace right now? That if I just like stummer through some of the words, and stummer's not even a word, right? So if I just make my way through these, if I even skip some of them, it's not that I don't love Jesus, it's not that I don't read my Bible, I'm just tired, bros. Let's go, all right? Chapter 7, and females, didn't mean to isolate the females on that one. But typically the females are the encouraging ones, like, oh, pastor, you did so good. And the guys are the ones like, man, you're an idiot. All right, chapter 7. Now, when the wall had been built, and I, this is Nehemiah talking, and I had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers, the singers, the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge of Jerusalem, for he was more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot, and while they're still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their homes. The city was a wide 
city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Verse 5. Then my God put into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy and those who came up at first, and I found written in it. So then he goes all through these names, and I'm not about to get into it, but I encourage you to go read this. So what's happening is the wall has been rebuilt. 52 days, the wall is there. Um, The temple has been built. Jerusalem is finished. And now that it's finished, Nehemiah, by wisdom of the Lord, is going, Man, I need to make sure the ones that came here are actually supposed to be here. So he goes back. If you look at Ezra 2, one of the first things that Ezra does is he writes down the account of uh, all the people that came with him there. And so what Nehemiah is doing is going, I'm going to filter through this to make sure that the people are here as I'm doing this genealogy report. The people that are here are supposed to be here, that this is the chosen people of God, that we're here all together. And there's some people on those lists that, that maybe weren't supposed to be there, so he has to deal with those. But it's just a fascinating process that he goes through in detail to make sure that the Jerusalem, the people of God, are there together in unity. And so skip down to verse 73 with me. Chapter 7, verse 73. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all of Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. Now, historically, seven months doesn't mean much to us, but seventh month in Jewish culture was massive. There were so many celebrations, there were so many parties. Um, it was the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Booths. So this is like the month for the Jews. This is their culture. There's all these things and nuances that we'll go into in a second that were happening. So this seventh month was massive. And, and this might be conjectures. I'm going to walk away from the Bible, but I'll make my point later. I think that Nehemiah was such a rush to get done with the walls in 52 days so that they could walk into the seventh month with no work. I think he was hustling, he was grinding, he was leading these people because he knew the significance, the power, the authority of what the seventh month offered to the people living in Jerusalem. So he was grinding away, trying to get to the seventh month, and, and he made it. So let's pick it up in 8.1. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they, circle, underline, highlight, they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So here we have to remember, it's been almost a hundred years since the exiles had come back from Jerusalem. hundred years. So this is a different generation So these people that are living there, the sons and the daughters of the ones that the original exile, and Ezra had only been there for about 15, 14, 15 years. So so some of these people just were not familiar, even though they're Jews, even though they're the covenant people of God, they're not familiar with the law. So they come up to Ezra as they're gathering in Jerusalem and say, would you teach us the law? Would you read it to us? Would you help us understand that? How beautiful is that? That they want to know the law that they want to know the Word of God. Please listen, we we don't take it lightly that you guys come on Sundays because we want to gather around the Word of God to hear the Word of God and to live by the Word of God. And this is exactly what's happening here. They, this wasn't something they were commanded to do. They wanted to hear the Word of God taught. Verse 2, 
So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read it facing the square before the water gate from early in the morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So there's a couple themes that we're going to start to see develop through these texts. The, the first one is understand. That the people of God really wanted to understand the word of God. That they longed to. This, this word is going to be used five or six times through the passage that we're going to. And so it's men, women, kids, everyone coming together to truly understand the word of God. And it's such a beautiful thing that's happening right in their midst. But we have to ask ourselves, do we have that desire Do we have that hunger to truly understand the Word of God that's in front of us? Because at some level, the rarity of things makes it a little bit more special, right? So for them, they didn't have a copy of God's Word that they could just read whenever they want to. The average Christian household has five-plus Bibles in their homes. Everyone in this room that has a smartphone has a free Bible accessible to them. And that's great. I'm I'm not minimizing that. I praise God for that. The scripture is so available to those around us. But has that turned into a little bit of white noise? Have we started to belittle, to to minimize God's word in front of us on our laps? Because just how easily and accessible it is. But that wasn't true for the people of God here. They were excited. They were wanting to understand. They were attentive here. So let's keep reading verse 4. And Ezra the scribe stood on the wooden platform that they had made for this purpose. All right, so there's my argument, right? That they had made for this purpose. So in the midst of the 52 workday, trying to get the wall rebuilt, Nehemiah had stuck some guys to the side, had built this massive platform and said, for this purpose, the law of God will be read from this platform. So, So there's my argument, right? There's my conjecture that I think that Nehemiah was trying to get it done in the 52 days so they could hit the seventh month running and they even built a platform for Ezra to stand on and read the word of God. And we see here 13, we'll pick it up in verse 5, but we see here 13, 5 to his, or 7 to his left, 6 to his right, next to Ezra as he's getting ready to teach the word. Verse 5, and Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, the people stood. Now listen, You have these men on both sides of Ezra, and they say the book, but it's actually a scroll. So some of the best commentators and theologians would say that that the scroll was so large that the people on his left and right were having to hold the scroll so that Ezra could stand in the middle of them and teach. That's how massive the scroll was that he was reading from and he was teaching from. And he'd also take turns letting people around him teach and lead. And when this scroll was rolled out, when the Word of God was presented before them, what happened? Everyone stood. Everyone instantly stood out of honor, out of respect for the Word of God being taught in front of them. Now, this isn't some prescriptive thing. I'm not saying that this has to happen every time we open the Word of God. But it's very descriptive, right? It shows the posture, the humility, the realization of what was happening in front of them. I mean, just church by and large, every Sunday across our country, the Word of God is opened, 
And typically the response is, man, Gabe just wasn't that funny today. Gabe was really tired, right? Gabe made another inappropriate joke, right? My pastor, I mean, it was, I just, I just wasn't feeling fed. I just wasn't feeling, so we take we, we, the minimization of the word of God and we go, oh, but it's the pastor. He's not that good. No one said that about Ezra. Now, granted, Ezra was incredible. He was a trained professional in the word of God. But the people could care less about who was presenting the word of God. The people cared that the word of God was being presented. They were standing out of awe, out of respect, out of wonder of the word of God. But we have made this into a performance. We have made this into a show instead of just the honor and respect that the word of God deserves. So, I mean, just as way of application, as we're working through this, what, what is your posture to the Word of God being opened in your midst? What is the posture of the Word of God in your lap right now? Is it authoritative in your heart? Is the posture of your heart wanting to stand out of respect, out of honor, or are you belittling, belittling it? Are you minimizing it? Are you making it secondary, third, fourth in your life instead of the only true measure of your heart? What is our posture to the Word of God? Because we see clearly the people of God in, in Ezra's time stood when this was happening. But not only did they stand, 8 verse 6, chapter 8 verse 6, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen and Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Again, this is a sacred time for them. As they're hearing the word of God, they're lifting their hands in praise, and they're bowing their heads before him, because this is a sacred time. I mean, it's, it's likened to Isaiah, right? When he has this vision, he says, Woe is me. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, dwelling among the people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king. Woe is me. So when we open the word of God, what is our posture? Is it, what do you have for me today, Jesus? Not much? All right. Or is there a posture of humility, of putting our heads down before the holy and righteous God? Let us keep reading. Verse 7, I'm not even going to attempt it, um, but basically there's this group of people in the Levites that helped the people understand the law while people remained in their place. So you have tens of thousands of people gathered in this area, and you have these people that are walking around, wandering around in the Levites that are helping people understand what's being read. Verse 8, they read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that people understood the reading. So here's this word again, understood that the Levites, Ezra, that Nehemiah desperately wanted the people of God to understand the word of God. So they're walking around answering questions that people have, but the other side of this, this younger generation that isn't familiar is already st starting to speak Aramaic. They're speaking a totally different language than the Hebrew Bible. And so these people are going around translating as Ezra is reading the law of God, as he's teaching the word of God, they're translating for them so that everyone can understand there's no excuse, no excuse for Jerusalem to not truly know the word of God because they're translating and they're explaining why all of this is happening. Let's keep reading verse 9. 
And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and the scribe of the, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this, is the, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Now, now if you're tracking, here's where things start to get a little strange. So they're teaching the Word of God, and obviously the Word of God is piercing their hearts, and it's bringing them to tears, and it's bringing them to repentance. And Levites, Ezra, and Nehemiah are walking around saying, no, 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 stop. Stop, don't, don't cry. Don't, don't do that. Stop, don't, st- stop crying. What? I mean, let's just picture, I just, Word of God wrecks everyone in this room, and we're transitioning into a time of communion, and you're sitting there, and you're praying, and you're crying, and you're contemplating the greatness and the majesty of God. I go, all right, y'all stop, go, go take communion. Tap you on the shoulder, stop crying, go take communion. You, quit crying, go take communion. Everybody stop, let's go. I mean, this just seem a little bizarre, Like, why is Nehemiah, why is Ezra stepping in when God is obviously up to doing something? He just steps in. Because the people of God are starting to realize, I I can't do this. I mean, all that is is expressed for me in Leviticus, all that's expressed in Exodus, all that is commanded of me to do, I cannot do. So they're feeling the weight of that. And Ezra and Nehemiah are going, no, no, stop. Don't, Don't do that, stop. But then it keeps getting even a little bit more strange. Verse 10. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to your Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. All right, so I have three girls. I'm not necessarily looking forward to the teenage girl stage. Because this is how I feel like I'm going to address them as teenage girls. They're crying, they're not in their right mind. I'm gonna go, uh, stop and go eat something. I mean, it's just for me, food fixes everything, right? So it seems like Ezra and Nehemiah are like the dads of teenage girls that don't really know how to handle the commotion that's happening in front of them. Y'all, stop crying, go eat, and here's 20 bucks, go take someone with you that can't eat. All right, are we good? Because I'm uncomfortable, everyone's crying, y'all just go eat, go, right? But he leaves them with this last parting wisdom. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. So they've been teaching the law. They've been explaining the law. Quit crying. Dry it up. Go get some food. Go celebrate. Go have fun, because the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now let's see how that advice plays out. Verse 11. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. What? It worked? So they were crying. They were mourning their sin. They didn't know what to do. Ezra and Nehemiah just said, Stop it. Go eat. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. And they left rejoicing. I mean, what a, what a shift that just took place. That if we're critically reading the Word of God, we've got to notice that there's something powerful in those words. The joy of the Lord is their strength. 
Because, listen, I, I have a wife, I have me, I have four kids. The reality is, hey, don't feel that way. It just never really works, right? I mean, don't you just hate that piece of advice? When you're really sad, like, quit being sad. Oh, thanks, man, I've never actually considered that. Jeez, I'm, I'm just going to stop being sad. But that's exactly what just happened, unless, unless there's some power in these words. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. Because when Nehemiah said that, everything shifted. When the Levites said that, everything shifted. Then they left rejoicing. They left celebrating. They left partying. So we have to spend some time in these words. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Because here's, here's what we see clearly taught from the text. Here's what we have to wrestle with this morning. Until we understand the joy of the Lord, until we understand the joy of God, we will have no strength to persevere. Until we wrap our minds around this simple sentence that this week has wrecked me, until we get there, we're going to have no strength. Because we see that the people of God were wrecked because the law of God was read, read and they, they couldn't do anything about it. They didn't know how to carry on their day-to-day life because they could not live up to these standards. But with this sentence, they understood and everything shifted. So then they had the strength to persevere. Then they had the strength to keep going. Then they had the strength to be obedient. Then they had the strength to follow God no matter what. That all of that was found in where? The joy of the Lord. The Lord's joy. So because we have a little bit of time, we've got to define our terms. Because really we have three things happening. Joy, Lord, and strength. So what is it that these words actually mean? Let's, let's start with joy here, because the joy of God, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Joy in the Hebrew is synonymous for gladness or glad-hearted. And that begins to ask the question of the morning, do we see, do we understand God as joyful and glad-hearted, or do we not? Because this is our strength. It truly matters how we view, how we see, how we recognize God. Because here, here's what we know that we can start to apply to God. That, that happiness is very circumstantial, right? I mean, happiness can change in an instant. You give me an ice cream cone, I'm fired up. I'm so happy. That ice cream falls off the cone and lands on the ground, devastated. Anyone else? Nope, just as a lone fat kid here. All right, thanks, church. <laughs> right? I mean, happiness can change so quickly. But, but joy doesn't. Joy perseveres. Joy lasts. Joy isn't fleeting like happiness is. Joy is eternal. Joy goes nowhere. So we understand this, first and foremost, that God is a God of joy. And we have to kind of wrestle with why is that? Because within the Trinity, He's perfect. He's complete. He lacks nothing. So God is a God of joy because He has everything that He needs constantly. He wants for not. He thinks not of anything else. I mean, can you just imagine that? That there's nothing that you would ever want. There's nothing that you desire. You own it all. You have it all within yourself. How fascinating is that? And we see glimmers of this within our popular society, right? I mean, Bill Gates, one of the richest men of all time, it's not worth his time to bend over and pick up a $100 bill because he would have already made $200 by the time he did that. It's just fascinating, right? 
But he still wants, he still desires other things. God doesn't. So his joy is complete within himself. We have to see that because most of us have grown up, we've seen this thing where um, the joy of those around us changes pretty rapidly based on how we address, how we do, how we perform. So if we're doing really good, people are happy and there's a joy around our home. But if we sin, if we struggle, if we fall short, that joy disappears. So we have a very skewed version at best of what true biblical God-centered joy looks like but because of the things around us. He's always joyful and he's always glad-hearted. Now, I know I've been taught this. Church, I, I know that this is true. But if you're going to ask me to describe God, those typically aren't going to be the first words that come out of my mouth. Right? Joyful, glad-hearted, delighting in his sons, in his daughters, that the joy is complete within himself, that there's nothing I can do that's going to take his joy away, and there's nothing that I can do that's going to add joy to him. His joy is complete within himself. His glad-heartedness is complete within himself. So this joy that permeates around the Trinity is a perfect, complete joy. We have to start understanding that. That the way that we view God in His joy, in His God-heartedness, is what started the shift for the people of God in Jerusalem. And if we let this grip our hearts, it's going to start the shift within us. Now, we kind of go to the second word that needs defining is the idea of strength. Strength. I mean, it doesn't mean just getting yoked, right? The idea of strength is nothing new to us, and really it's nothing new to the people of the Old Testament. They, they knew the story of Joshua. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. But the word strength in Hebrew means a place of or means of safety, protection, refuge, or stronghold. Let me read that one more time. The word strength means a place of or means of safety, protection, refuge, or stronghold. I am strong. I am safe. I am protected. I have a refuge within myself. And we all feel this in our individualistic Western society. The strength is up to you. That if you want to feel protected, if you want to feel a refuge, that's up to you. If you want to feel safe, if you want to have a stronghold on life, the strength lies in you to accomplish that. That you are, it's up to you. You have to be strong. You have to be courageous. You have to do this. Because really, strength is what separates us today. Well, yeah, physical strength, sure. But most of the time, it's emotional strength. It's intellectual strength. It's relational strength. What are we going to do when we're not the strongest in a certain area? We're going to go work at it because we want to feel protected. We want to feel safe. We want to have a refuge within ourselves because we are the strongest. So, so here's a few things that we just normally would put our strength in. Our ability to be good and moral. We're going to put our strength in our morality. Well, at least I'm not as bad as that person. So then it starts to make ourselves feel safe. It starts to make us feel protected because we can point out the faults of them. At least I'm not like that. Are we going to find our strength in our possessions? 
that I feel safe, I feel protected. I have a refuge of my stuff. We're going to feel safe because of our past, of our pedigree. I mean, I had a, I had a great upbringing. I've got this, I've got that. I mean, I, I'm, I'm safe. If anything happens, I know I can fall back on my family. I, I feel safe about where I come from or our accomplishments. I, I can feel safe. I can feel protected. I have a refuge within myself because of what I've accomplished. Look at this. If I can do this, I can do the rest of my life. I can make enough money. I can have enough honeys. I'll just be fine, right? Sorry, that rhymed. I just had to go with it. Just scratch that one from your mind. But what Nehemiah is very concerned with is very simply this. That they had rebuilt the temple. That they had rebuilt the walls. And that they were going to start putting their safety in themselves. That they had accomplished much, right? By the grace of God, through the hand of God, they had accomplished much. And if not careful, they were going to start putting, in, in, they, in God's providence, saw the trend going this way. That we've, look at all that we've done for you, God. Look at what we've built. Look what we've established. Now you've told us the rules. I'm going to follow those to the best of my ability, and I will be strong within myself. And it would be very hard-pressed to find people in the room that admit that. But church, we all live that way. We very clearly live, God, tell me what to do, and I'll do it, and I'll prove myself strong in it. Tell me what not to do, and I won't do it, and I'll prove myself to be strong in it. And this goes back to the joy that is God. Because we don't believe that God is actually joyful. We don't believe that God is actually glad-hearted. We believe that if we don't do these things, he's going to get us. And we believe if we do these things that we know we're not supposed to do, he's going to get us. We don't actually rest in the joyfulness of God. Now, context really matters here. So let me spend a few minutes just in the context to see what's happening and see the trajectory here. Because, because we would think, right, that like God's word is taught, repentance has been had, everything's good. But, but what are they repenting to? This is the massive question. I, I can tell you you're wrong, and that's the first step of repentance, right? Stop doing this. But if I don't circle behind and say, and start doing this, then you're never going to change. Are we tracking? So if we, don't, if we don't have something to move our energy to, to move our efforts to, then we're just going to be lost, wandering around, doing nothing. And so the Feast of Booth is just this perfect uh, celebration of what's happening. So, so Ligonier posted a quick description of the Feast of Booths, and I think it'll be on the screen. There it is. A few of the feasts that were part of the Old Covenant worship were as joyful as the Feast of Booths. Do y'all see that word? Joyful. Also known as the Feast of Tabernacles, or by its Hebrew name, Zakat, the celebration was the last of the fall festivals that was held at the end of the agriculture year when the grapes and olives were harvested in Israel. This was a time to thank God for all the preceding year's provision and to pray for a good rainy season which lasted from October through March. Primarily, however, Sukkot was designed to remember the wilderness journey from Egypt to Canaan when God made the people live in booths. So here's what's happening. The Feast of Booths, this time, the seventh month, was a massive celebration for two reasons. One, God, thank you for blessing us with all this in front of us. 
Look at this harvest. Look at the bountiful harvest that's in front of us. God, thank you for all of that. But it's also a time for them to look back and to remember that God brought them out of slavery into the wilderness, gave them the law, gave them the Ten Commandments, then brought them from that area, brought them into the promised land with Joshua, right? And that is where they're dwelling today. So it's a time for them to look back and go, we were once slaves, and now look what we have. And it's a time for them to look at the present and go, how did we get this all in front of us? God is incredible. It's a time of celebration, of joy, of partying, because God was faithful to them back then, and he's faithful to them now because he's a good-hearted, joyful God. And here's where we have to start wrestling. How then do we know that God is joyful and God-hearted? You very clearly look to see how he's provided for you. You look at your present, and you look at your past. Has God provided for you? Has God protected you? Has God blessed you? Has God led you to where you are? Now, it might not be where you wanted to be. Your life might look a lot different than where you are or where you had planned. But has he ever left you? Has he ever forsaken you? Has he provided for you? Has he led you to still waters? Has he blessed you more than you could ever hope, dream, or imagine? And the answer is yes, but can we clearly see it? So the seventh month, they had to slow everything down, right, so they could see it. They had to stop working. They had to get out of the fields so they could slow down and see all that God has done for them and all that God is currently doing for them. Now, many scriptures and many theologians point us to this one point. But how do we do this? What does it look like to dwell in the joy of the Lord? So if, if you've read anything, and I would strongly encourage you to read literally anything that John Piper has written, because he's really committed his entire life, his entire ministry to this one point. It's, he calls it Christian hedonism. And here's what he says. This is what he's most famous for. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Have y'all heard that before? All right. I encourage you, go. I will help you buy a John Piper book to understand this idea more clearly. That God is more, most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So here's what John is saying. That you don't have to have begrudging submission that if you just rest in, if you abide in the joyful, glad-hearted God that we serve, then you're going to see who he truly is. And through that process, you're going to naturally worship him for who he truly is. So God's going to get the most glory from you, not by forcing you to worship him, but revealing himself to you, and that's going to lead you to worship. Here's the inverse of this that he says. It is a false nobility to worship God only because he deserves it. It is a false nobility to worship God only because he deserves it. It's better to worship God because he is so magnificent and worthy, and I can't help but worship. Well, we just have to sit in that because a lot of us, worship has just been a duty. It's a performance. It's what we know we're supposed to do, so let's do it. But the affections aren't there we don't understand the true nature or character of who God is. And in light of that, we don't know how he actually views us. Charles Spurgeon just 
puts it this way. The prince of preachers, not me, him. The Lord is no longer an angry judge pursuing us with a drawn sword. I mean, let me just stop real quick. How many of us feel that so often? How many of us feel that within our bones? That he's an angry judge pursuing us with a drawn sword. He's no longer that. But a loving Father into whose bosom we pour our sorrows and find ease for every pang of our heart. Oh, to know, beloved, that God actually loves us. Oh, to know, church, that God actually loves you. I've often told you I cannot preach upon that theme, for it is a subject to muse upon in silence, a matter to sit by the hour together and meditate upon. So if we start thinking about what Spurgeon is saying, if we, if we take this idea that, that God loves us, that he's pleasing us because he's a joyful, glad-hearted God that delights in his sons and daughters, that he's not angry with us, that he's not trying to uh, kill us with a sword, that he delights in us because he is a joyful, glad-hearted God. If we sit in that, if we think about that God, if we meditate on that God, how much is going to change within our life? So we see this theme of the Old Testament, but even Paul to the church in Philippians, in Philippians 4, 4 through 7, puts it this way. Rejoice in the Lord also, always. Again, I say rejoice. So this idea of joy, rejoice in him because who he is. Rejoice, delight in God for who he is. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. So here again, we have this phrase that, that Nehemiah said it, Ezra said it, the Levite said it, now Paul saying it. Don't be anxious. I know a lot of us in this room have some anxious tendencies. Has that ever helped? What are you freaking out about? Don't be anxious. Chillax, brother. No, but what Paul is getting at is don't be anxious because you have a father that cares for you. So it's not just stop doing this. It's redirect your mind to the father that loves you, that cares for you, that's rejoicing over you, that delights in you, that he's a glad-hearted father that's going to give you what you need. He's not out to get you. He's out to love you. But, but we don't pray that way. We don't think that way. For most of us, it's, I, just, I don't want to bother him with this. I don't want to, he's sitting in his easy chair. He's had a long day at work. I, I'm worried what happens if I walk in there and I say the wrong thing or I trip over my words. Like, he's just going to get mad and kick me out. And maybe I'm just preaching to myself. John 15, 9 puts it this way. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commands, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and abide in his love. Verse 11. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your, and that your joy may be full. So I've said these things, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. 
So what does it look like for us to not have anxiety? What does it look like for us to have a joy that no one can compete with, that you cannot get me down? I mean, you read all through Paul in the New Testament. It's incredible because you couldn't do anything to the brother. If you throw him in jail, he's going to convert all your guards to Jesus. And if you let him go, he's going to be screaming Jesus wherever he goes. You literally, I mean, he was shipwrecked. He was everything. He was beaten. You could not put Paul down. Why? Because he had the joy that wasn't going anywhere. Because he was connected to the Father. He remained, he abided to the Father of joy. So if we want to walk in joy, if we want to be untouchable by the world around us, I can tell you how it works. You abide, you remain, you hold steadfast to the Father of joy. If you have your Bibles, flip with me to Romans 8. We'll, we'll end here. Because I just need us to see this for our eyes. What would it look like, church? What would it look like if we said, I'm in? I'm going to change the way that I view God to a joyful, glad-hearted Father that loves me, that cares for me, that provides for me. As Zephaniah would say, that rejoices over me. If I'm a son, if I'm a daughter of this God, what would my life look like? What would it be? I think Romans 8 just puts it perfectly. We're going to pick it up in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's what we would say. That if my God is a joyful, glad-hearted Father that's here to protect, take care of, provide for me, out of his joy, out of his perfection, that I can't do anything to earn his love, he's freely giving this to me, what would our attitude, what would our mindset be that if my God is for me, who can be against me? What are you going to do to me? Let's keep reading. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. This is crazy talk unless we fully comprehend the God of joy, the God of God-heartedness is for us. If we don't get that, then none of this makes sense. Verse 38, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angel, angels, nor rulers, nor anything present or things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what our lives would be marked by if we truly understand that God is a God of joy. That is where our strength would be rooted in if we understand that the joy of the Lord is our strength. That we have a good, joyful, glad-hearted Father that delights in us. That nothing can separate us from Him. That our joy isn't, we don't have to play into His joy, that the joy is complete, the joy is full. We'd have this massive confidence in our God and our Father. But, but do we? 
Do we? I mean, are we the people of God that Nehemiah said, stop crying, go rejoice, because the joy of the Lord is your strength? Or are we still sitting in that moment? Are we still looking and we still praying to God like he's disappointed in us? Are we still praying to God like, man, I, I hope I say the right things or else? What is your view of God? Here's a question I've been asking myself this week. Maybe this would be uh, of advantage to you. In your lowest moment of your life, when you needed the most strength, when you could not depend on yourself anymore and you hit your knees in prayer, who were you praying to? A rigid, hard-nosed God or a loving, joyful Father who for His joy loves providing for His children? Now listen, I'm not saying, and please hear me, because we're teaching through a book. I'm not saying that repentance is not necessary. Daniel's going to cover that next week. But I'm saying if we don't understand the nature of God, we cannot repent. If we don't understand the character of God, the joy of God, the glad-heartedness of God, then we're repenting to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. We're not actually turning to God. We're turning to our own moral successes. We're turning to our own strifes of energy, not to a loving Father that cares deeply for us. So as we wrap up, as we're going to go into a time of communion, here's the thought. Let's put ourselves in the mindset of the festival of booths. As we wrestle with, as we try to understand the God of joy, the God of God-heartedness, Here's, here's my two questions. Just like they were celebrating the crops, how God has blessed them in front of them today, how has God blessed you today? What, what has God done for you today in this season of harvest? How has he provided for you? How has he cared for you? How has he nurtured you? We've got to be honest about that. We don't worship God enough. And in the same way that, that he rescued, God rescued them out of slavery of Egypt. If you're a Christ follower in this room, God has rescued you from the slavery of death and sin and destruction. So we as Christians can clearly look back and say, man, look how God has saved me from this. Look how he's redeemed. I was, Ephesians 2 said, I'm walking straight to my death. There's nothing that I can do to earn salvation, but God has radically saved me out of that. So we can celebrate that, and then we can slow down and see the celebration of God around us right now, that he delights in us, that he cares for us. But, but what if you're not yet a believer? What if, what if you're wrestling with this? Because of what Christ did on the cross, us as believers, our, our sin has been covered. So when God looks at us, he can rejoice over us. He can celebrate us because he sees the perfection of his son. But if you've not yet surrendered your life to Christ, he doesn't. So this loving father must punish sin. He cannot be a just God, a just king if he doesn't. But he is a loving father that he wishes all men to come to repentance. So we've got to ask this question if you're not yet a believer. What is your view of God? 
Do you see him as a father that loves, delights, protects his children? And do you want to become a child? Do you want to be adopted into the family? What, what then is your view of God? So as we enter into a time of communion, if you're not yet a believer, I just ask you to pray and consider that and think through that. But if you are a believer, as we go to communion, I want us to wrestle through those two questions. How has God blessed you today? And has, when's the last time you worshiped God for how far he's brought you? That you are a sinner and deserving death, and he has radically saved you and brought you into the fold. Not to complete his joy. His joy was already complete. But because of his joy, because of his God-heartedness, he brought you in. So I'm going to pray for us, and we can consider these two questions as we go into communion. Let's pray. Father, we are conflicted. Maybe we're confused. Maybe we have had a different image of you than, than who you really are. Father, because for most of us, we, we might not see you as a joyful, glad-hearted Lord. We might not see you as the Father that delights in us as your sons and daughters. We might see you as following after us closely, waiting for us to trip up so that you can punish us. We may see you as a God that your love for us is determined on our performance. That if we're doing good and right things, you're pleased with us. But the moment we slip up and fail, you're mad at us. Father, we see you as a glad-hearted, joyful father. loves to give, give, give good gifts to his children, that delights in, that loves, that is pleased, that, that doesn't need us to placate to him, that doesn't need us to make God feel better about himself, that you are already perfect, you're already joyful, you're already glad, you need nothing from us, you just delight in us. And as we become more and more excited about that God, the one that loves us, that cares for us, that gladly listens to us, that loves us no matter what, then the natural byproduct of that is worship. The natural byproduct of that is confidence in you. The natural byproduct of that is strength. That we have the strength to be obedient. That we have the strength to persevere that we have the strength to be untouchable to the world around us because our Father loves us. He's pleased with us. And there's nothing else we have to do. And from that freedom comes a willingly to obedience. Comes a willfulness to perseverance. Comes a willfulness to make disciples. That the Christian life is true, that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. He frees us to walk in that obedience. So church, as we take communion this morning, that, that's my question. How, how do we view God? Because the Jewish people in Nehemiah were freed up to rejoice, to celebrate, 
to eat good food with good company, to let their hair down, to relax because their God is pleased with them. Do we feel the same way? So church, when, when you're ready, communion is open. You can go consider. We can celebrate that God has t- saved us from slavery, from sin, and now we are counted as sons and daughters to him. And let that stir our affections and our worship for the Lord this morning. So whenever you're ready, church, communion is open. The elders will be over there to pray with you and We'll continue in worship and celebration.